Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Dr. Batsheva Marcus, who is one of the founders and the clinical director of Mays Women's Sexual Health. The center, the largest sexual health center in the country, founded in 2000, is dedicated to helping women with a wide variety of sexual issues. Batsheva is founding member and served as president of JOVA, um, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, and has sat on the board of directors. She's a coordinator of her partnership minion in Riverdale, Shahar and was past chair of the Women's Tefillah Network. Dr. Batsheva Marcus, thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so these questions I have for you, you can speak about certainly for hours and hours, um, but to, to, um, uh, to start the conversation, I'd like to ask you, what are some of the most frequent issues that you get from Orthodox patients? And how similar or different are the issues faced by modern Orthodox patients by what we might mean uh, progressive or liberal orthodox, modern orthodox versus more centrist or more or more uh, Haredi patients. Right. So I would say that um, women's sexual questions tend to be similar throughout. Not even just orthodox women, non-Jewish women. You know, not religious women. Like it, women tend to get hit with the same things again and again. But I will say that the orthodox community tends to have more of an issue when it comes to um, pain when they start um, when they start their sexual experiences, usually when they're married, some of them before they're married, but um, they have pain. What I will say is very different is not so much the issues, but the language and the familiarity and the education they received. So the Haredi patients often come in with no vocabulary and no language, and that makes the jobs just so much more difficult. Um, but the modern Orthodox women have a usually a better vocabulary and more familiarity, but they also seem to be steeped in a lot of shame that, you know, that religious communities often, unfortunately, unintentionally, I think, foster. And so it's a matter of kind of working with these women to get them out of that, that shame base. But the issue tends, I mean, that shame issue is an issue also for secular women. Like we live in a weird society where sex is kind of like all around us, but nobody actually has real conversations about it. So you see more of a problem. Orthodox women in general have more of a problem with pain. Um, they are very good about trying to get it addressed but they do have to get past that idea of like, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to talk about it. Um, and the Haredi women, they don't often don't have the vocabulary for pleasure. Um, the modern Orthodox women have that and trying to sort of re like get people's trust so that you can talk to that pleasure is really critical. And I will tell you that one of the things I always say, and I really do feel strongly about this as an Orthodox community in any part of the Orthodox community that's committed to long-term monogamous relationships, the idea of like learning to have pleasure and kind of really being able to deep dive into sexuality and understand 
how that works for women is so critical. So I hope that answers the question. It's a little, I, I yeah, totally. a little So yeah. just to understand um, the nature of this shame a little bit, I can think of various categories and I wonder what's the most dominant. I mean, I'm sure they're all there. There can be a shame around inadequacy, around sexual performance. Um, there could be shame around one's body, uh, shame around sort of guilt um, of participating in sexual activity, shame around, as you said, pleasure. What do you see kind of playing out most there? So I would say it's the third thing you said, which is there's a level of ironic. There's just this idea that somehow, like I just had a patient a few days ago who said to me, like, I know rationally and you know, cognitively that sex within the confines of my marriage is a good thing. But I, I've been told for so many years that thinking about sexual things is bad, that when you ask me to think about these things or, or talk about these things, I start immediately feeling like terrible, like I'm a bad person. And that is so counterproductive if we're trying to get, you know, women and couples in general to sort of be able to sort of revel in the eroticism that they need to do in order to sustain a relationship. But it's, it's less shame about their bodies. It's less shame about their ignorance. There is some of that also, but I would say it's more just this idea that on some level they've, 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 um, they've, gotten seeped with this idea that somehow sex is bad. And I know that that's not what we mean to teach our girls. And I know that's not what people want to teach their girls, but I think that's what they end up with. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Awesome. Good. So to, so to move from a little bit from the problem to some of the opportunities, how, how do you healthily discuss sexuality or educate people about sex in a community where it's, it's rarely addressed? Like, what are some of the steps that are involved here? Again, you could talk about this for hours. <laughs> hours, hours and hours, and I do, unfortunately. People are like, enough, Bachava. Um, so I, I feel like parents have to talk to their kids, and I often feel like parents are very quick to kind of push this off and say, well, the school will deal with it, or their friends, they don't say their friends, but they think, oh, their friends, or when they get married, their college teacher will talk about it. I feel like I spend half my life trying to convince parents that you need to talk about this stuff because if you want to present your values to your kids, the only way for you to do that is by you talking about it. So it's, you can't off, you can't offline this to somebody else. Now I will say that um, I, I really also push people to start very young, like really, really young. Cause the younger you start conversations with kids and the more it's kind of intertwined with your life, the easier those conversations will be, the more, the better they'll, they'll sort of the outcome of them and your kids will feel like they can talk to you about things. So the, the analogy I often give is you wouldn't wait until your child was 12 years old to have a conversation about nutrition. I'm assuming, right? You're not going to, or veganism. You wouldn't sit your child down at age 12 and say, by the way, I want to now give you a lecture about why you should be a vegan, right? You don't do that. It's like when you're shopping and when you're talking and when you're planning meals and when you um, have birthday parties for whatever thing that comes up, that is when you'd be weaving these conversations in. And that is what you should be doing about sex also. So when the kids are little, it's talking about um, body parts and um, identifying them honestly, answering their questions when they come up, when you're watching television together and something comes up, keeping books around the house, when you're discussing Tanakh. Like, I feel like Tanakh is like the best opportunity to have conversations. You need to make it a living, ongoing conversation. And then it doesn't become something shameful and scary and, and, and sort of verboten. Then it becomes something that's natural. Awesome. So since we're talking about kids, what are Orthodox schools currently doing around sex education? Uh, you know, and what—that's what, a fast answer. Nothing. Yeah, no, that's nothing. Right. And, um, no. And, yeah. And, and what are the opportunities? What grades would you start? What are some of the basic things you'd start? And how do you respond to the typical Orthodox critique? If we talk about it, uh, kids will engage in it more. 
Oh my God. Oh my God. Where to start with that? Okay. So um, let's start with your last piece. Okay. Every, every single study, and there have been really good studies and many, many, this is actually an area that's been studied. The more you talk about sex with kids, the more information you give them, the later they start acting on information and the better decisions they make. Like there's a lot of things that we don't have data on, but that we have really good data on, you know? So, um, so you can take that one. And I would say, I think it's time for people to- Wait, so, Sorry, is, is that because of fear of STDs or what is that? What, why would it delay? No, because they, they understand what's happening. So they're, they, they get their questions oh, answered without crazy. actually experimenting, right? Like they, they understand it. It becomes sort of less, like, less scary. Like, oh, okay. you know, if there's a book on that shelf that you are not allowed, if you keep telling your child, you can't talk about that book. You can't talk about the book. The book nobody mentions, whatever. Oh, you think as soon as you're out of the house, they're gonna yank that book oh, off yeah, the shelf, yeah. right? But if you're like, here's the book, here's what it is. You have questions about it, come talk to me it just takes the magical goldenness away from it to the point where it actually delays i mean that is really well studied and it also makes them make better decisions because they've actually thought through their decisions either in big ways or small ways with people in their life that they can trust so it is you know I, that one i just say like there's a lot we don't know and we don't understand but that one i can say with confidence has been well studied and well documented so okay so where should i again think that if you talk about sexuality in its broadest context you want little kids to start being able to use body language you know their language about their body in a way that's comfortable and doesn't feel scary the idea that you your child knows the name for um, his or her ear or nose or mouth but doesn't know the names for the genitalia that's not great so i mean like that's also sending a message what you're not saying is walking to your kids as well so um so you want to start when the kids are young and i think the schools could start with sort of you know consent issues which wouldn't be called consent issues but like respecting each other and understanding you know when somebody says i don't want you to touch me i don't want you to touch my arm i don't want you to touch my face like those are conversations that can start really pretty young in smaller grades and then as kids get older there should be more and more direct sex education. Now, yeshivas aren't doing it, and I don't think it's only because they think the kids will act on it. I think they're scared the parents will get angry at them. I, I do. Um, and I think, like, SAR High School in New York City has an outrageously wonderful sex education curriculum, which really focuses on, you know, safety as well as um, issues of consent and issues of pleasure. They have a separate curriculum that talks about sort of the halachic ramifications and understanding from conceptual piece and they also have a very practical piece but most schools as far as i know at this point almost no schools have that i mean you would know that better i mean you're in, more in contact with other day schools what what, what what what's the grade you would start at probably ninth i would have that kind of education ninth but i would do sort of in the younger grades i'd be taught maybe seventh or sixth i would start talking and, about but, yeah i'm sorry and, and when young children ask their parents questions about how babies are made What's the age you would start with sort of a specific answer versus fairy tales? Immediately. 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 Because in general, one of the things that I found to be true and people in this field have found to be true is if the kids don't understand it, it goes over their head. But then they retake it out again when they need it. Right. I would never do the fairy tales. I would bring in some books. I actually just put on my, um, on Instagram, I posted my favorite books about kids um, on you know, favorite parents' kids, uh, sorry, favorite books for parents about kids. Um, so if anybody's interested in pursuing that, it's Dr. Bacheva, Dr. Bacheva. Um, I, they're amazing, lovely, sweet books out there for really little kids, for four-year-olds and five-year-olds. Like, you know, how are babies made? They're not graphic, they're not gross. They just have very basic information, which our kids are entitled to. And that makes it seem less like a less deal. So that when you 
are, your kid's getting older, you're not getting that, la, 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say because this is so embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so how can rabbis and other Orthodox Jewish educators do better on this front of being, an, of being educators to the community? And also, it feels like there's also a balance here, unless you tell me there's not one, between boundaries of avoiding sensitive topics, you know, expressed, you know, insensitively, but also responsibly educating. And like you said, many are afraid of being called out for handling something inappropriately. So what do you advise here? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's an interesting time that we're living in. I think that, um, so the first thing is, and I often, when I speak to rabbinical students, I often say, I think signaling that this is an issue that couples can come and talk to you about is very important. Um, that may, might be having books on your shelves that, you know, signal to people that those are topics you can talk about. That has to do with how you, when you give a sermon or you give a drasha or, you know, when you're talking, when you're speaking, you know, not using fake words, you know, not using euphemisms when you can be using like a real word. Um, that's, I think, really important. I think maybe getting out there and giving chatan and kala classes, you know, bride and groom classes um, and being able to talk. But, but this all harness, this is all um, balanced on the fact that in the end you have to be comfortable doing it. And a lot of rabbis, and I get it, are not necessarily trained to be comfortable. Like most people, therapists are often not comfortable talking about sex. And so I, you know, I joke around, but I say you have to practice these conversations. You have to be able to use the, the correct words, um, you know, without hesitating and that you can practice in the shower. You can talk to your spouse, you know, you want to talk to your friends. You want to be able to have these conversations where you can say, where you can use words that make people, you know, comfortable because they realize that you are comfortable and that you don't hesitate or use euphemisms. And I think that signals to your congregants that you're available to talk to because the truth is that whether you like it or not, it's like tag your it. Like couples usually go to their clergy when there are problems or want to go to their clergy and don't know where to turn. And so, you know, I would keep all the general safeguards in place. You know, I either have windows in my office or have somebody outside my door. Like I would probably not meet alone with women unless there was somebody standing, sitting right outside the door. But being, being able to talk to couples, I feel like being so scared that you can't do anything, therefore making yourself not available is just, it's so heart-wrenching to me because you have no idea how much pain couples are in and really need somebody to talk to. So I really you know, think that's a great way to go. Awesome. awesome. So what happens when sexual activity in the marriage is no longer about, about trying to have children? when it's either post-fertility or post-trying for children or post-menopause, you know, is this a typical problem that those view sexual activity as, uh, as baby-making and then there has to be a shift that creates new challenges? So I would reframe that question a little bit. I think in general, we have to do a better job at shifting that dialogue. Having sex in a, in a, in a religious, holy context of marriage should be about fun and pleasure and closeness. And, and that's constantly a challenge. You know, this idea, this sort of ridiculous fairy tale we're told that you get married and then you have sex and you, know, you figure out what you're doing and then it's the same for the rest of your life. It's just absurd. That would be like my saying, here's a suit on the day you get married, you're going to wear that suit every weekend now for the rest of your life. Like your body's going to change. Styles go out. You know what I mean? You change. And so for a lot of couples, it's a challenge to kind of get to their sex life on track when they first get married. And then things shift. Then you have a baby and that shifts things. And then you get like your post, you're nursing and that shifts things. And you get a little bit older and the guys may have erection issues and that shifts things. And you're on medications and, and you're bored. You've been married for 30 years. So 
the unexamined sex life is not a good sex life. A sex life that people are working on and focusing on is the ultimately, and that's true about all the way across the board. And that's a message that has to come in prior to having children because when you're pregnant, you're not trying to have babies. You know, you're, you, you need to be accepting and understanding of the fact that you want a good close marriage and to do that, sex helps. And so let's keep the sex life strong and let's figure out how to do that together. Great, great, love it, love it. Okay, so I, I think a last question, which is on a different subject, the subject, subject of modesty. Uh, again, okay. you can talk about it for weeks and weeks. The, um, the, the discourse around sni'ut, um, as you know, can often involve body shaming. And I just wonder, what are some of the ways more broadly to constructively discuss modesty for, for men and for women in the 21st century while also avoiding some of these classic pitfalls? Okay, so I think using the term respect for your body um, is a better term. And I think, um, and I think with a consciousness to the fact that um, being pretty is not equivalent of sexy, um, being proud of your body is not necessarily a bad thing. Like that's, God gave us these bodies. We're supposed to be good about it. Um, I think for the most part, the best way to avoid creating problems with girls and there's huge numbers of eating disorders with orthodox women is that girls um is to not hyper focus on it just like relax about it a little bit you know yes girls will probably go through a phase and boys too when they're early adolescence where they sort of experiment a little of how they look and they are a little bit more involved in how they look than maybe we as parents think they should but relax those girls are not going to be walking 42nd street 20 years from now they'll be fine but if you keep telling them to like you know, hide, cover up, think about it. First of all, you make them hypersensitive. And second of all, then you can do damage that is much harder to undo in the long run. Mm -hmm. So um, so I feel like you want to have conversations about dignity and modesty about a lot of things, the way we behave, not just the way we look. And that should just be a small piece of the whole conversation. Amazing, amazing. Friends, uh, be sure to check out Dr. Basheva Marcus's uh, uh, writings and recordings. This was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.